0: Uh, Pleasure to be back again uh, tonight. Welcome if you missed yesterday and you're you're joining us fresh uh, this evening. uh, Please turn to Zechariah. It's the second last book of the Old Testament. Uh, If you're using the church Bibles, I think it's page 950 uh, or thereabouts. We're turning to chapter 3 tonight. Uh, I do like to bite off as much as I can chew, so we covered two whole chapters last night. We're doing the same again uh, tonight, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, while you find it, let me explain. Uh, the people of Zechariah's day were the first of God's people uh, to return to Jerusalem from the punishment of exile uh, late on in the Old Testament timeline. Uh, Zechariah called the people to return not just physically to the land, but spiritually in their hearts and their affections and their worship to God himself. They were to rebuild the temple and they were to rebuild their relationship with God as well, God wants to encourage them in all of that, and so uh, in all of the difficulties they face, He gives them uh, these eight v- visions or dreams through Zechariah uh, that make up God's message to His people for that time. Uh, and tonight's two visions, visions four and five, concern the two leaders of God's people at that time: Joshua, who's the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who is the, the governor. And we learn elsewhere he's in the royal line; he's a descendant of David. He's the guy who would be king if God's people weren't still being ruled by the Persian Empire. Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the the more or less king. And we pick up with vision 4 starting at chapter 3 verse 1 and Zechariah speaking. Then uh, the angel showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And we finish our reading there and uh, perhaps you're relieved by that because it's kind of quite enough to get our teeth into. Uh, let's, let's pray before we do that, before we start to unpack this together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this book of Zechariah, this uh, fascinating part of your word. You've preserved it for us that we might better know you and your purposes and your ways. So uh, please do teach us and reveal yourself to us by your spirit as we open this book together tonight. Uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are lots of things uh, in this world that don't mix. Uh, some things uh, just shouldn't be mixed, uh, like ingredients on a chopping board. You don't want uh, the juices from your raw meat or raw fish ending up in your salad. That's a quintessential recipe for disaster. Um, another thing that shouldn't be mixed uh, is white and colored laundry. Maybe you've had the, the experience of finding the red sock that turned your white's wash into a pink wash. Uh, those things should not be mixed. Uh, other things simply don't mix. Uh, I'm in, when I'm in chlorine, I sometimes bump into an old chemistry teacher of mine, uh, and I can remember him teaching us, among many other things, about immiscible liquids. Uh, liquids that don't mix, oil and water uh, being an obvious pair. They, they don't mix. Um, and Just to keep things in the, in the kitchen, another pair of immiscible liquids, olive oil, and balsamic vinegar. I hope you did manage to eat before you came out tonight, um, because that does look pretty tasty to me. Uh, in fact, if you're into salad dressing, I think it's oil and vinegar that are the two ingredients that separate out in the bottle. They seem to mix, don't they, when you shake it up? Uh, and, but they, they soon separate out again. And if you want them to mix permanently, like in a salad cream there, you've got to add some other thicker ingredients and make a kind of emulsion uh, that holds everything together. That's um Just a bit of information by the by. And if you don't like it or if you don't like salad cream, well, uh, don't get upset. It's not worth getting emotional about these things. Ah, that's good. Everyone's, everyone's awake. That's, that's very positive. At the very start of the Bible, God creates the first human beings. And he walks and he talks with them in a garden paradise. He, he mixes with them. But they choose to doubt his goodness and disregard his authority and disobey the one instruction for their good. The one no in a world of yes. And as a result, God and people can no longer mix. God is holy and pure and good they are fallen and sinful and spoiled. The the king cannot mix with the servants who have committed and will forever continue to commit treason. God and humanity must be separated out. So Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, banished from God's presence and sent away. And from that point on, from Genesis 3 on, you could say that the question hanging over the Bible story is how can God and people ever mix again? How can a holy God ever dwell with sinful people? Now, fast forward to Zechariah, almost at the end of the Old Testament timeline, about 519 BC. uh, And God's answer to that question has not yet been fully revealed. The people are back in Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the temple and rebuild their relationship with God. And God's encouraging them through these visions to Zechariah. So last night, in visions one to three, God promised to comfort them and to judge their enemies that were still surrounding them, and to dwell with them as he gathered them in. But that question's still there. How can God dwell with his people when they're still sinful? How can God and people mix? How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? As they start over with God, uh, as they have a fresh start, what's going to make this time any different? And what about us? If God really is building this unshakable kingdom that we began to think about last night, uh, a safe and secure refuge from the the dangerous and unstable kingdoms of this world, uh, well, how can we belong to it? Do we really belong in God's kingdom? How can uh, rebels and traitors and saboteurs uh, have any part in God's kingdom? Uh, And if we can't, if we're trapped forever on the outside, uh, then that is a disaster for us in an ever-changing and ever-threatening world. How can a holy God dwell with simple people? What's going to make this time any different for the people of Zechariah's day? And what is our confidence that we belong in God's unshakable kingdom? Uh, well, we're going to look at the two answers to that question that Zechariah gives through these two visions at the center of his sleepless night Uh, Visions 4 and 5, so we're going to look into vision 4 first of all, and here's what we find. God will remove his people's sin. God will remove his people's sin. This is the first answer uh, to our question of how can a holy God dwell with sinful people? Can we really belong in God's kingdom? Well, God will remove his people's sin. Visions 1 to 3 were very encouraging, but vision 4 introduces a big problem. Look at chapter 3, verse (coughs) 1. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So this vision is of a courtroom where the angel of the Lord is the judge, and Joshua, who's the high priest at the time, is in the dock with Satan, the prosecuting lawyer, the accuser, uh, standing ready to present his case. Normally the high priest looked pretty smart. Uh, dressed in a special uniform head to toe, including a turban on his head with an inscription on it that read, Holy to the Lord. His whole outfit symbolized the holiness that God required of his people if he was going to dwell with them, as he promised last night, didn't he, in Vision 3. Joshua is supposed to be this picture and symbol of the perfect man. But here, uh, Joshua is dressed in filthy rags, verse 3. That means soiled. Don't make me spell that out for you. It means unclean, defiled. It means sinful. We took a, a family trip once and had the chance to... Well, we've had more than one family trip, but on one particular trip, we had the chance to look inside a World War II British submarine. And we learned that on tours of duty that lasted uh, sort of six to eight weeks at sea, that the sailors wore the same uniform day and night and did not wash themselves or their clothes let that sink in for a moment. Uh, then when they returned to shore, they caught the bus home to their families, still in the same clothes. I don't know if the buses had windows that could be opened, but I sure hope so. Uh, we can imagine it. Uh, Joshua here is soiled. He's unclean because of sin. He's unfit to be the high priest. That's a big problem for him, but also for the whole community. He is the one who would present their offerings to God. He is the one who would go into God's presence to pray for their forgiveness. But here he's exposed as a sinful man himself. Offensive to God. Incapable of serving God or the people. This is a big problem. And then in this courtroom, something unexpected happens. Something Shocking. The judge point-blank refuses to hear the case. He dismisses it out of hand. He rebukes the prosecution lawyer, verse 2, and then he orders that Joshua's filthy rags be removed, verse 4 and 5, and replaced with clean clothes. The filthy prison overalls replaced with a crisp new suit. Now maybe we think that sounds brilliant, but uh, but hang on, how can this be right? Is this just another religious cover-up where the priest gets away with it? Whatever happened to due process, to justice? Whatever happened to sin mattering to God? Sin's is what God, Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden, and that was just a piece of fruit. Sin is what God, God's people banished into exile and now ruled by Persia. Those were punishments. That was justice in action. That was due process. What's this? cover up miscarriage of justice we're not not actually even done yet look at verse 6 the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua this is what the Lord Almighty says if you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts that's the the temple and I will give you a place among these standing here that's the angels uh, present in the court of God so uh, whatever exactly this means it's a high honour So this filthy, defiled man is cleaned up and promised that if he walks with God and does his job, then he'll be in charge of the whole temple and of the whole worship, of the whole community, and he'll have some sort of privileged access to God himself. I mean, imagine taking someone from the the darkest, seediest, guiltiest part of death row, someone who's committed the most heinous crimes... Taking off that prison boiler suit, uh, dressing him all in, I don't know, white or something and making him the archbishop or something like that. We don't all have the same structures like that, but that sort of idea, how can this be right The explanation begins in verse 2. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Joshua, like the whole community, has been rescued from exile at the last moment, at the point of destruction, the point of burning up. He's been rescued. Then verse 4. See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Uh, So, so far the explanation is not a cover-up. But God is doing this. He has rescued and cleansed Joshua. But how is he doing this? And, and is it just? Well, the answer is that he's going to send someone. He's going to send someone whose service to God takes away the sin of God's people. Look at verse 8. Listen, uh, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you. That's, I guess, all the other priests who are men symbolic of things to come. Symbols of what? Well, symbols of this. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Zechariah's visions do take a little bit of work. Um, it's especially hard work tonight, I think. So uh, be encouraged if you're still uh, chomping at the bit by the time we finish tonight. Um, we, br- we do break the back of them and, and uh, we'll enjoy seeing how they fit together tomorrow. Uh, but they are hard work. Every time we feel like we're just about due for an aha moment... Punchline that come never quite hits home. It doesn't quite land. We're left confused. So, you know, we, we read this and God's gonna send someone. And we think, oh, here we go. This, this'll be it. Uh, my servant. Yeah. Yes. The branch. Oh. <laughs> doesn't really ring a bell. But it definitely would have rung a bell for Zechariah's audience, the returned exiles, listening to him sharing these visions. And we need to keep listening with their ears through them. They've heard of the branch from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the guy who explained in advance how the exile of God's people would start and end. The exile they've just experienced and, and still are some of them experiencing at this point. There's no book of the Bible that these people know better than Jeremiah. This is the the one that they turn to all the time to find out what's going on with them. Uh, And in Jeremiah 23, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David, King David, "uh, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. It's exactly what God's people have needed. It's what they didn't have. drove them into exile but here's joshua and the priests who are somehow symbolic of a king who's coming a branch in the family tree of king david a king who'll do what's good and right and pleasing to god now let's just put a pin in that and hold that thought and uh, and read on in zechariah three from verse nine as we take another different direction see the stone i have set in front of joshua There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. In other words, a blessing and abundance is going to be restored. Joshua is perhaps literally given a gemstone in in this vision with seven eyes or seven faces, you know, like a dice has... Uh, six faces, well this is one, this has seven, and it's inscribed uh, like his turban with a promise. This is a gemstone as a sign of a promise. Next year is a leap year. Apparently the 29th of February is a day for women to make marriage proposals to men uh, rather than the other way around. Well how old fashioned uh, you might be thinking women can do that any day of the year. Thank you very much. This is the 21st century uh well either way i i bet it's still the girl who gets the ring uh i don't think anyone's pushing to change that tradition but an engagement ring is a bit like the picture here a gemstone for joshua as a sign of a promise just like a diamond ring is the promise of a wedding well what's the promise for uh joshua well verse 9 i will remove the sin of this land that's the sin of all god's people in a single day We put these pieces together and what do we have? This branch will come, a king in the line of David, a man who is also symbolized by the priests, a perfect king and perfect priest rolled into one and somehow through him, God will remove his people's sin in a single day. And that really should ring a bell. Fast forward to Good Friday and there is a descendant of King David, a man who never once sinned, a man who is the real life perfect man, a priest figure and a king figure, and he hangs dying under the dark sky of God's judgment and wrath until bizarrely he cries out, it's finished, mission accomplished. What's going on there? Is that justice? Well, on that day, justice is done for all sin Ever, because Jesus bore it all. Jesus removes the sin of God's people in a single day. How how can God and people mix? How can we belong in God's kingdom? Only by God sending a perfect man, his own son, who would be a, a king who would establish God's perfect rule and a priest who would bring us cleansed to God by removing our sin. That's how God and people Mixed. That's how we can confidently say that we belong in God's unshakable kingdom. What does this uh, vision mean for us today? Well, for one thing, it means that you're not good enough to go without a savior. Uh, your sin is real and it stinks. It's a foul smell on God's bus. It's worse than any old submariner. It makes you repulsive to him. It makes you unacceptable um, You might think you're a decent person certainly nowhere near as bad as those people out there Uh, maybe not even nearly as bad as ordinary people out there but what you think about yourself does not matter because god thinks otherwise sin is filthy to him so you need jesus to take his sin and take your sin on himself You need him to do that. There's no other way either. Look at, look at Joshua. There's no other way out of this for him. No other way out of this courthouse. He doesn't say a single word in the whole vision. He's absolutely helpless. Totally passive. It's all done for him. There's no other way. Jesus suffers your death sentence or you suffer it. So that's one thing. Uh, You're not, excuse me, I'm gonna sneeze. (coughs) No, I'm not. Uh, You're not good enough to go without a savior. You're not good enough to go without a saviour. Another is the flip side of that. You're not bad enough to be beyond this saviour. Joshua could not be in a worse state. But there's no stain that Jesus doesn't completely remove. No one is beyond his reach. If we come to Jesus, he removes all of our sin. Paul writes, uh, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for Jesus' death in the cross. Uh, In our place. Absolutely necessary. Because we all need to be thoroughly washed clean. But also thoroughly effective. Because Jesus cleanses us completely. Here is the foundation. Of God's unshakable kingdom. It is a completely empty kingdom. Without this. Uh, But through Jesus. We can come into this unshakable kingdom. Um, Ransomed. Healed. Restored. Forgiven. Forgiven. Or, from one Getty song, uh, cleansed, forgiven, and secure. Secure. So these uh, returned exiles, they, well, they must have lapped up the generous uh, reassurance of visions 1-3 to three last night. God's going to comfort us. He's going to judge our enemies. He's going to dwell with us. But there's still that question of sin. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? What's going to make it different this time? How can we have any confidence in God's unshakable kingdom? Or in our part in it. Well God will remove his people's sin. And he'll establish true worship by his spirit. God will establish true worship by his spirit. Zechariah is halfway through these eight visions. uh, Now uh, as are we. And his friend and ours. The interpreting angel is still with him. In fact he's the one who gets a word in first at the start of vision number five. So if you've got those Bibles open again. uh, Look at chapter four verse two. This angel asks uh, what do you see now skim over verses 2 and 3 and 11 and 12 that's where we find out let's, uh, let's paint the picture there's a large lamp stand like a uh, like a, a an old oil lamp a large lamp stand with these seven lamps on it seven flames burning and the fuel for the lamps is oil it's olive oil which is contained in a bowl at the top and brought to the seven burning lamps by seven channels The bowl itself is fed with a never-ending supply of olive oil through two pipes, in verse 11, which seem to be connected to two branches of two olive trees, one on either side of the lampstand. It's a strange picture, but that's what it is. What does it mean? Well, I don't know if you're reassured, but Zechariah doesn't know either. Verse 4, what are these, my Lord? What am I looking at? Again, in verses 11 and 12, what are these other bits? And for once, uh, our friend, the interpreting angel, is not that helpful. He says uh, twice, Don't you know? Don't you get it? And we want to say, mm, No. Uh, but he does say something. So look at verse 6. Let's uh, follow the clues. He says, uh, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So Joshua, a minute ago, the priest, Zerubbabel, at uh, this time. This vision of oil and lamps and trees and pipes is something to do with Zerubbabel, the governor and a descendant of David. The guy who would be king if they weren't just still a Persian province. What's Zerubbabel's job right now? What's priority one for God's people and their leader? What we saw last night, it's rebuilding the temple. And the message for him in verse 6 is, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. How is the temple going to be rebuilt? How are they going to overcome everything that has stopped them getting it done since they first returned to Jerusalem 18 years before? How are they going to overcome everything that still stands in their way? All the practical problems all around and all the spiritual problems in themselves. The fear, the apathy, certainly the sin. Well, the answer is that God is going to make it happen. so easy to get discouraged uh, about church And we we just want things to be bigger and better and stronger and more. But human effort doesn't build God's temple and human effort doesn't bring about true worship and human effort doesn't change lives and human effort doesn't bring us to God and it doesn't build his church. We can't undo our own sin. Adam and Eve couldn't force their way back into the garden. And we can't just try really hard and earn our way back into God's good books. We are his enemies. We are dead inside. We don't want to know him at all. We can't restart our own hearts to love him. We can't make ourselves true worshippers. We can't build the church any more than we can wake ourselves and others from the dead. But God will establish true worship by his spirit. Not that that's an invitation to sit back. Verse 7, I don't know if you've ever heard or even used the phrase, let go and let God. It's not the message for Zechariah. Verse 7, there are still going to be some huge obstacles and some hard work. What are you, O mighty mountain? Well, that's about the biggest obstacle you could imagine, isn't it? A mountain. But before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. It's going to be leveled. Then he will bring out the capstone To shouts of "God bless it, God bless it." What are you like with DIY? I hate DIY, with an absolute passion. Uh, And some who know me well would probably ask, "Well, when did you ever do? uh, When did you ever do it yourself? Uh, Where did you learn this hatred for DIY?" But (laughs) but whether it's DIY or or a kind of a more serious bit of building work at your house. uh, A bit of decoration or a bit of an extension perhaps. I think the worst part is always the middle, isn't it? The worst part is when you've ripped out, you've knocked holes, you've spoiled the way things were, and there's no going back. That is the worst point. There's still so much to do. There's no particular end point in sight. There's no positive encouragement. There's no sense of how things are going to be just yet. And the uh, the only real motivation is that you can't stand the sight of it the way it is in the in the limbo. Uh, but later on, when it's watertight or it's plumbed uh, or wired or whatever, plastered, skimmed, papered, and you start to clear some of the rubble and the tools, you can see the end in sight. You can see a glimpse of what it's going to be like. It's like the clouds are lifting and the sun is starting to come out. You've you've got through that dark bit in the middle. Well, for Zerubbabel, there will be huge obstacles and hard work rebuilding this temple. But because it's God's Spirit who supplies the strength and God's Spirit that really gets things done, Zerubbabel and the people can be confident. They'll soon be bringing out that capstone, the final bit, the final block. They're soon going to be cheering. And the Spirit sees the work through to absolute completion. Look at verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. He started it. His hands will also complete it. Zerubbabel started it. He's going to finish it. Because the Spirit sees God's work through to completion. But it is going to be done the Spirit's way. On the Spirit's terms. And that does mean obstacles. That does mean hard work. That does mean weakness and doubt. All to teach us that the success is his success. It's not our success. Verse 10, there will be many a day of small things. There is an idea for your next church motto. Your next news sheet. What's our motto for this month? It's a day of small things. We could use that again and again, couldn't we? It feels like that most of the time. Doesn't it? Slow progress in our churches and discouragement. And we're putting a lot of work in, but we've got these Obstacles. And our efforts don't seem to make much difference, but all will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. I think this means that they're going to see the project chief, Zerubbabel, on site, checking the work, uh, working down his clipboard, looking through the snagging list, putting the finishing touches, checking that things are vertical, and then cutting the ribbon. And when the temple is completed, this picture of the seven lamps will be completed. I think that's why we get this strange little bit. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. It's a bit of a tricky phrase, this. But I think it means that the completion of the temple is the key to these eyes or these lights. The presence and the worship of God giving light to the whole world. When the temple is rebuilt, when the people are worshipping God on His terms, His way, that's going to be a light in a dark world. In fact, they will be a light in a dark world. Some other Bible passages give us a little bit of confidence to take this passage in this direction. Uh, There are seven lampstands in Revelation, of course, and they're churches. They're communities of God's people worshipping and serving him through Jesus and being a light in the world. Jesus himself says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So, um, so back here in these vision, these lamps seem to be the people of God shining for him, uh, burning for him with God present with them. Zerubbabel's job is to build this temple so that God's people can be committed to him, worshipping him, serving him with God present with them. How is Zerubbabel going to build this temple? Well, by the power and the work of God's Spirit. How will the people worship God and burn brightly for him? By the power and work of God's spirit. People will burn brightly for him because God will supply his spirit. The spirit is the oil in the picture. God's people will shine brightly for him because he will provide a constant supply of his spirit. And I know this is hard work, but we've almost cracked it. We're almost there. There's just one last question. Where will God's spirit be? come from this is a, a new idea a newish idea for these people how will God supply his spirit and Zechariah is a little bit ahead of us I think he's guessed that the lamps are the people of God that the oil to keep them burning brightly is the spirit of God so if the oil is the spirit then in verse 11 what are these two trees and verse 12 what are these two branches in verse 14 these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth God's spirit is supplied by these two servants of God, these two anointed servants. So what's all that about? I think it means that these two trees represent the two men at the center of these two visions. Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor king, the descendant of David. Joshua and Zerubbabel, the closest thing these people have to a priest and a king, a mediator and a ruler, And maybe like before, that just rings a bell. A priest and a king, both literally anointed with oil as they took up their roles to serve God, but but all the way through the Old Testament, separate figures, separate roles, never combined, until one man comes who is both priest and king. One who both mediates and rules. And one who at the end of the Gospels rises from the dead and ascends to reign as king and pours out his spirit on all of his people. Jesus. Just like chapter 3 and the branch, this vision ultimately points to the Lord Jesus, our priest and king. And so to us, this vision says that God will build his unshakable kingdom, his church, out of sinful people who, who don't belong until he takes their sin. And enables them to worship with true worship in spirit and in truth. People who will burn brightly for him. And it means that he will build this kingdom. He will build the church not by our meager strength. But by his inexhaustible spirit. uh, Supplied and poured out by his anointed servant. Jesus Christ. We take these two visions together, they say to us, God has answered this question of how God and people can mix, of how we can really belong, of how it's going to be any different from the Old Testament. He's answered this lingering question of the first three visions. How can a, a God dwell with his people? How can their worship be acceptable to him? He's answered the question of how his unshakable kingdom can be built at all and how we can belong to it. It's through Jesus Christ, our perfect Priest and our forever king that god has removed the sin of his people and established true worship by his spirit we're almost done for tonight let's try and bring this down to earth it's all a little bit kind of up there isn't it in chapter 1 verse 6 god issues this command and this promise or was it verse 3 i can't remember now Uh, turn away from would return to me and i will return to you Turn away from sin. Turn away from spiritual dryness. Does that describe where you are tonight? Turn away from that. He's encouraged us through these visions that when Jesus ultimately returns, he will comfort us, he will judge our enemies, he'll dwell with us fully, finally, and forever. He is building an unshakable kingdom. And here in these central visions, we see that God can and will and is doing this because through Jesus, he has removed our sin, this impossible obstacle to true worship. And he's poured out his spirit that we might worship him and dwell with him, a holy God, that we might be uh, rightly in his kingdom, that we might belong there and be at home with him. We're not at that final fulfillment just yet. We're between, aren't we? We're in the now and the not yet. Some of this is now and some of it's not yet. Today God's work is ongoing. It's work in progress. Like this temple. We're not building a temple. We're not building a city. We're not building a nation. But God is at work in us, in our hearts, in our uh, churches. Maturing us, growing us, helping us to live worshipping lives together. How is that work going to be done? Well, not by might, nor by power, not by elders' meetings, not by a Sunday school curriculum, not by a fresh weekend. Uh, God's work is done by His Spirit. There is hard work for us to do. There will be mountain-sized obstacles, obstacles in each heart, obstacles in each fellowship, obstacles to our outreach. There's going to be many a day of small things. That motto is still going to count. Those days when serving God seems weak and insignificant, when everything just feels very shaky, but the same Spirit who completes all of God's work is at work in us. God has removed our sin in a single day and established true worship by His Spirit. So look, as we finish, let's take two things away from tonight. Number one, let's have confidence. It is 100% worth Serving God, it's still worth those elders meetings, that Sunday school curriculum, uh, all of that hard work. It's absolutely worth serving God and his kingdom because he accomplishes his purposes. It's worth putting all that effort in because it's not down to us for the results. It's his spirit. So have confidence. And then number two, let's have a longing. Let's have a longing to be filled with this never-ending supply of God's Spirit, longing to burn brightly for Him. We can burn brightly for Him in this dark world because God has removed our sin and poured out His Spirit on His church. Let's pray. Father, when we open our Bibles and start at the beginning, it's a a long time before we get to the answer of how a God like you could dwell with people like us. It's a solution that could only come from your side, and it's one that costs so much, the death of your son. We think of Joshua in the dark, and we, we ask you, please help us to see our sin the way you see it. But also we thank you so much that we too can be fully cleansed. No matter how stained we are. Jesus paid it all. Father Jesus has poured out his spirit to build his church. What a privilege to be part of everything you're doing. Everything you've always been doing. To make a people for yourself. To build your kingdom from every corner of this world. Father we've seen tonight that your work in us is the spirit's work. and He works through our weakness oftentimes everything seems so shakeable. we see that without him nothing is achieved but that with him your work is fully completed help us then to be people who rely on you in prayer help us to be people of prayer and churches of prayer help us to be people of confidence that you who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of christ jesus fill us more and more until then father to burn brightly for him and we ask in his name amen